Hello, my name is Matt Barr and you're listening to episode four of Looking Sideways. This is my podcast where I try and uncover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. You're going to hear from Olympic medalists, Oscar winners, pro athletes, filmmakers, company owners, broadcasters and much more during this series. What have they got in common? Well, they're all linked by action sports and they've all got inspirational or fascinating stories to tell about the lessons they've learned and the scars they've picked up along the way. So dig into the back catalogue. There's a few on there now and there's plenty more to come. Thank you to everybody who's been in touch with feedback or comments. That's been really great to read. To help me make more of the podcast, I really do ask you to leave me a review on iTunes or subscribe so you can get every episode as it comes out. Future episodes are going to include an interview with uh, Xavier Delarue, interview with surfer and environmentalist Eski Britton, Finisterre founder Tom Kay on how he built one of the world's most beloved surf brands, and Oscar-winning documentary maker and snowboarder Orlando von Eisendale on what it feels like to win an Oscar, which is a really good one. You can find me online at my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com. You'll also find SoundCloud links to every episode if you want to follow me on there. Or you can find me on Facebook over at We Are Looking Sideways and on Twitter and Instagram at We Look Sideways. So there you go. Anyway, on to today's episode, which is the second part of my interview with snowboarder and freeride world tour competitor Sasha Ham. If you haven't listened to the first part yet, which is episode three of the Looking Sideways podcast, you should definitely check that out first. So head on over to the site or iTunes to download and have a listen to that one. In the second half of the conversation, which is what you listen to now, Sasha taught me through the wilderness years, as I insisted on referring to, the, to it during our conversation, after the first half of his snowboarding career ended. Why was that? Because after winning the British Championships in 2000, he won 10 grand, as he explains, we decided to take those winnings and gamble it all on becoming a Formula One driver, as you do. And he spent the next three years chasing that goal, which he explains in the first part of our chat. Soon after, as you'll hear, Sasha then set himself up in business before heading back to his beloved mountains again to chase another dream that I've competed on the Freeride World Tour. As with part one, this is another brutally honest chat from a man dealing with huge changes in his life in typically forthright fashion. So Sasha, it was great to talk to you and thanks again for appearing on the show. So here it is, part two of my interview with Sasha Ham. Enjoy. I called it the wilderness years early earlier. How how long was that then from, from the end of your seasons to the beginning of the Freeride World Tour? Was that 10, ten 12 year, years? 10 years. So 2000 to 2010. So, um, yeah, I mean, during that time. So the reason why I stopped, I didn't want to stop snowboarding, but um, I won the British Champs in 2000, the halfpipe and the overall event. Back then, we got a bit of money, sponsors doubled it, and I wanted to achieve my lifelong dream of becoming a racing driver. So I went to Silverstone, uh, joined a racing school, won a race, um, then went to a team. Um, but motor racing, very different to snowboarding. Snowboarding with 10,000 pounds, you've got best season ever. Motor racing, you can barely get one race weekend through with that kind of money. So you need about 100, 150,000 pounds to get through the year. So. Yeah, so I had the team. The team wanted me to drive from, but I had to find ninety thousand pounds to drive from. So how did you go about doing that? I had um, so Stuart Morgan, who was one of the guys from uh, Oakley, 
Um, he introduced me to uh, someone who um, uh, who was going to manage me, and he actually he actually put me in touch with some of the Formula Three Thousand teams, so really big teams. But you know, and because of that, the the team actually let me drive without even having the money yet. Then I had um, a friend who owned a company who said, um, "I'll give I'll give you thirty thousand pounds if you." Um, um, let me uh, use thirty percent of your marketing. So there were certain deals done, um, lots of credit cards. Um, yeah, I mean, I tried. What did I learn from motor racing? So I did it for three years. Um, How did you do? Were you good? First year was tough, especially because of the money problems. Um, second year, uh, got a couple of podiums. I won two races. Um, third year um i had no more money left so you know those credit cards which you get where you don't have to pay anything for one year so i took out loads of those um but no more money left so i told the um, um the series uh, organizer look i just i can't do it i don't have any money and he said i'll pay everything all you have to pay for is petrol money and entry fee which is basically 250 quid for a race weekend but i'm not allowed to practice so literally, because the practice day itself costs two grand, so literally I would have to turn up, straight into qualifying, straight into the race, and then... But at the beginning, it was fine, because I knew how to drive those cars, so I was still getting seconds. What cars were you driving? Uh, they were Formula... Well, it was Formula Ford and then Formula Zip, so well, that was a series back, back in the day, and to um, 16 what, three and a half, four seconds, so um, cornering speeds load so it's one it looks like a formula one car but a lot less horsepower so it's the first step to get to formula one which was obviously the dream yeah of course yeah but i mean i didn't really think it through properly because you need so much money behind you um but back then i mean this is uh, in the year 2001 2002 you needed about three million pounds to get to formula one so it was um Two years in Formula Ford, which is 300 grand, 150, 150. Then two years in Formula 3, uh, which is 500 to 700,000 pounds per year. Um, and then you'd go into Formula 3000 or GP2 now, which is probably like 1, 1 1.2, 1.3 million every year, which you have to pay as a driver. Um, Blimey. And then you're in, and then you've got the potential to go in Formula 1. Nowadays, you can see that you need five to ten million to be able to enter formula one so you need to pay that to the team so it was a dream um in the third year he was paying for it but half half the way through the guys which weren't so good were starting to get close and i didn't know how to race them because they were going for gaps and if you can't race the way you want to if you have to back out because you think oh if i crash and then i'm gonna have to pay two thousand pounds to get that corner fixed i just went up to him and said look i can't do it anymore it's over so sometimes you have to know when 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 it's good to stop so yeah so there i was um hadn't finished my studies um loads of debt um what do you do where do you go how old were you at this point uh 21 second uh, it was 2002 2003 so I was 20 
27, 26, 25, 25, something like that. 20, yeah, 25. Um, so what do you do? Um, become a salesman. <laughs> so that's what you did. <laughs> so I started selling insurance over the phone. If you want it on these predicative dialers, so I didn't even call the number. It would just dial it for me. Hi there, this is Sasha from the... You go through it. Um, I think it was PPI, you know. You scumbag. I, I, I don't know. I was just, you know, this is the first year. Uh, and then what else did I do? Then I tried door-to-door sales. Why did you decide upon sales? Actually, I didn't. What I did before, so already during the motor racing, I was doing um, surveys over the phone. I used to hate sales. I was like, if someone wants to buy something, they'll buy it. They don't need someone to force them into it or try and persuade them, you know. If I want to buy something, I hate going into a shop and someone says, can I help you? Well, let me have a look first, you know. I'll have a look and then I'll make my decision. Um, but I was doing surveys and in a way, and was no commission. This was literally just calling up, I can't remember, six, six pound an hour or something. Um, calling up and trying to get one of the um, directors to speak to you to do one of these surveys. So between zero and ten, what do you think of this? And and getting someone to speak to you for these surveys took 30, 40 minutes, in a way is sales. So six months in, I was thinking, you know, in a way I am selling, I'm not making any commission from it, but I am selling by getting someone to commit to, to a conversation. So that's how it then changed and I found this company selling insurance and um, did that for about a year, a year and a half. And then tried door-to-door sales for two weeks. Not for me, very hard, very, very hard. But, um, and then I saw an advert in the uh, Metro, I think it was, with a skydiver on it. And I've always wanted to skydive and that was um, join Foxton's estate agents. So had an interview with them and that's how I got into the property business. That's how I met my partner, Julian, my now business partner, Julian. And um, so we, I didn't fit into Foxton's. So I got sacked after four months. Um, what did you get sacked for? Um, I wasn't the worst performer, but I definitely wasn't the best performer. So I was just average. But um, I think they didn't really like what Julian and me were doing because we started Foxton's not to sell property for them but we then went up to Leeds bought a student house to rent out to students so we wanted to build up a property for portfolio and learn about property so and there of course Foxton's here working eight to late every day um, ten thousand pound basic everything else commission so it's very salesy again learnt loads so learnt a lot uh, but um, yeah uh, wasn't to be so uh, sacked me after four months good very good actually and then I went to work for um, someone who had a company selling properties in Spain um, and I told Julian about this company and I said look he doesn't know what he's doing come over from Foxton's and uh, we can make this company really big and make loads of money so Julian left Foxton's to join uh, Dream Home Spain as well really hard times we were literally standing in liverpool street station trying to get people's uh, email addresses phone numbers to build up a database so, but you know that, that those were the times back then so um but again learned a lot um he stopped paying our commission uh, stopped paying our basic 
and then we decided um, rather than work for someone who's got a self-destruct button um, why not do it ourselves and that was in 2004 so 2004 we started our own company selling overseas properties and it's grown um, now we don't do overseas properties at all anymore we just focus on UK investments so buy to let properties uh, mostly in northern cities like Liverpool uh, uh, Manchester, Leeds, and so on. So. And here we are in your office in the heart of the city. Yes. Quite an impressive location. How many people got working for you here? Well, we've got two offices now. So we've got this one here in London, and we've uh, opened an office in Liverpool. Um, so um, London's gone, to be honest, London's gone downhill a little bit. Um, it's all about how to manage salespeople. So down here, we've got two accountants to incline care, uh, marketing department, uh, and at the moment we've got four salespeople. Um, Liverpool, we've got six salespeople. Um, the same again, client care, uh, everything else. So, um, the problem with London is we don't have a sales manager at the moment, and with me only coming in for two hours a day maximum, I can't, and then having to do stuff like this with you, I can't. <laughs> There's no time for real work. <laughs> no time for real work yet. So it's, um, no, but it's, um, we're, we're looking for a manager at the moment. So the last one was um, actually brought this, because we used to have seven salespeople here and literally it's just gone downhill with, because um, it needs to be managed correctly. So. Um, Are you a good manager? Um, managing's not my, my skill. Um, I make people cry. Uh, so I've uh, made a lot of people cry, and this is even, even, thirty-eight-year-old men. <laughs> You've made thirty-eight-year-old men cry. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe it's because my mum's a psychotherapist, so I've learned a bit to go a bit deep. So, um, but no, I mean, everyone's got their own skills. So um, Julian's more the manager type, so he's more the one who who gets everyone riled up, which you need. You need someone who's positive, where I'm more the person who finds someone's faults. And I would say as a manager, that's not how you get the best out of someone. Um, I'm good at training people, so teaching people, but then to get them to be positive and work on it. I'm learning. You're learning, uh, yeah. I'm learning, yeah. It's difficult. Um, it's what, it's what, what, yeah, a doctor was going, so... He was going, you should be more positive. I bet you're the but, worst patient in the world. So, but I'm not, you know, you are. It's not about positive. It's about being a realist, yeah. you know. I'm sorry. This is what I mean. So I've got to deal. Oh, you know, you need to believe it's going to get better. Well, I'm sorry. No, I need to see proof. <laughs> so I can empathize with that. It, you know, it's, um, you know, your own mind at our age. I think you know how you... Um, how you get results let's say you know if you've got some if you've got a problem to solve or you know if you've got somewhere you need to get to i'm sure you you know you've been motivating yourself and and achieving goals all your life haven't you so you kind of know how to push your own buttons you you get stuck in your own ways no but you learn um i i watched um one of the um fabio so again one of the skiers from the from the tour sent me a, a link to watch and he's, um, he's been working with a guy called Bruce Lipton, who's got um, a book out called uh, Biology of Belief, I think it's called. And there's like a two and a, a, two and a half hour um, 
uh, online link on YouTube and watching that was very interesting so um, that goes into believing being able to change things and it does say that um, it's very hard for us to change who we are because in the first seven eight years of your um, of your life um, the way you interact the way you behave how you are gets basically programmed into your brain and after that you know even if you tell yourself for example let's say you're you're someone standing standing in the bar and there's there's some guys who can just go up to girls and go hey how are you doing and even if you say just do it you know if you're not programmed that way you can tell yourself a thousand times i'm going to do this it's not going to happen is it so uh, it, it was a, it was very very interesting to uh, to watch especially with this injury as well what to, what to do and how to act what's the guy uh, called uh, bruce lipton Okay, I might. I'll put a link to that. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, with the world tour, you can see it's just like with the snowboard scene. It's you know back in the day, it was a family. Um, yes, there wasn't really internet. What was that? I can't even remember. No, uh, not Facebook and stuff like that. No, so. when we did our first season of White Lines, me and Chris hand wrote and faxed all the articles from the French Alps, which uh, dates us a little bit, I would say. Wow. Yeah. So the free ride world tour. Um, what on earth made you decide in your mid or well, early to mid thirties to to give that a go? Like, where did that come from? Well, actually, the world tour to me wasn't. I wasn't really interested in that. So um, how it came about. So Julian and me were building this business. Um, all our focus was on on work. Yes, I would have those couple of days riding a year, if that. Um, and then the credit crunch happened and basically you know it would have been work work for barely any pays so uh, we spoke to our accountant and he said the best thing to do was become non-domicile uh, sorry not non-domicile uh, non-resident for a year which means leaving the UK and not coming back for more than 90 days a year so Julian all his life he's from from young age school um, and then from school, college, college, uni, um, uni work. So he didn't have the fun times we had, you know. For us, it was like, like school and after that, it was going snowboarding. So he literally was in that rat race, not really, but in that hamster wheel, you know, yeah. where you basically do. So he never really had this year off. So what he wanted to do was basically go travel the world, find himself. So, um, yeah, 2010, we decided, yeah, let's make this company. My company wasn't really making much money at that time because of the credit crunch. No one was really buying property. Um, so we um, closed it, made the company dormant. Um, and Julian went um, traveling around the world. Um, and I decided to go back to what I love doing, which was go snowboarding. So do a season, brilliant. Do a season, exactly. You know, yes, it was a 10-year break, but snow, here I come. Great. So you went to Chamonix, right? Well, I was going to go uh, back to Lazark because Lazark, thinking back, those mountains, you know, especially with Le Plan, which I didn't know that well, um, uh, amazing. So the train there, amazing. But um, James Stenterford, uh, Tosh, they were in Chamonix, uh, and they said... Um, come to Chamonix, you'll love it. Um, back 
uh, back in the um, uh, back when we were doing seasons in Lazark, uh, the uh, the sponsors, so um, Pete Turvey, L'Esprit de Keep, um, they were all in Chamonix. So whenever we had to um, get our new snowboards, get our new clothes, we would have to go to Chamonix to pick them up. And every time I was there, it was terrible. It was dog shit. So it was um, mogul pieced, no powder. You know, so for me to do a season in Chamonix, which gets tracked out literally after after two hours on the first day, what's the point? You know, what, what, why bother? So I didn't really want to go, but they persuaded me, say, look, you'll love it, you'll really enjoy it. So I just thought, you know, this is where I know people. So yeah, let's go. There was a room free in, in, in Tosh's place, so uh, I went to Chamonix. And one year turned into two. So Julian went travelling for another year. Um, I loved the season so much, I ended up doing another one. Um, and um, yeah, Chamonix ended up being a, a great place. So um, the, you've got the normal season up to the end of April, uh, but then the real fun starts when the um, terrain higher up uh, gets in good condition. And it basically, usually around April time, it snows, uh, sorry, it rains after uh, in the afternoon. And then in the morning, it's sunny again. And of course, high up, this is over 3,000 meters. It means you've got powder. You've got to work for it. You've got to hike everything yourself, but you've got the coolest and most amazing runs. Um, and I was doing loads with James. So um, uh, we, were, we were riding a lot, um, doing loads of different uh, treks. Um, and was James involved in this story that Tosh told me about you getting pulled off a Greedy Medina helicopter? No. Can you tell me about that? That was the year after. Um, late in the season, if you go up the, um, the Aguila Midi, uh, it's basically one lift which takes you up to 3,800 metres and there's certain runs to go down. So um, later on in the season, the later you go up, the more dangerous it gets because of the heat, avalanches and so on. So um, I ended up going up one day, I wanted to go up early, but I did have to do some work, so um, so I only got up there at two o'clock. I remember being in the lift, just tourists around me, um, riding on my own. Um, but I had this run mapped out where I knew I had to abseil 15 meters, um, and then I would get into a powder field and have this amazing powder field to go down. So, uh, Is it off the mid station? Um, or the top? Top, 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 yeah. Uh, so I went all the way to the top, rode around the back, so um, you get to the um, Glacier Ronde, you ride down the Glacier Ronde and into the um, Exequa, and then you, you turn right to get to um, Salopa, it's called uh, uh, the run. Um, doesn't get ridden that much, um, very steep. Um, and so I rode down on my own, um, got to the upsell point. The drop was about 30 meters and not 15. So with my 30 meter rope, no chance. So what to do? Can't go back up. I could have lowered myself 15 meters and then just let myself fall the last 15 meters. But it was late and all of a sudden I just saw avalanches setting off literally everywhere. So I just clipped myself into the wall and then called the heli. Uh, so they picked me up um, and they ask you, um, so where are you? So I explained where you are. Okay, what are you wearing? I've got a red snowboard, a blue jacket, and a red backpack. Okay, we're coming. So, so they came. It was quite cool, actually. They were flying literally 
coming up right in front of me, so I could see the I could see the the pilot and the the, the guy next to him, like literally right in front of me. And then they flew up, uh, brought the winch down, winched me up, and in the helicopter. Of course, they were both nodding uh, their head, going, "Yeah, you idiot." And I was, I know. So the next day, I thought, you know, the run's still there, you know. So um, uh, there was someone I met two weeks before um, up um, so th this is riding in May so this is you know this is when all the other ski resorts are shut so I met uh, uh, Paul two weeks um, before and I told him about the run and said look you know this this run is still available so um, if we both take a 30 meter rope we can get down to the bottom and then we've got an amazing powder run so the next day we decided not to leave at two o'clock, but we literally went up first first thing, so really early, um, and uh, got to the top, rode down the Exocor, uh, the Ronde again, got to the Exocor, but I already, I was watching him, and he wasn't that comfortable on his skis, I, I could see, maybe this isn't something to do, because up there it's no fall sign, if, if you fall, yeah, you're pretty much, it's pretty much over, so we got to the Exocor of the Ronde, and I dropped in and it was literally just a sheet of ice. So it was like an ice ring. And the Exocorwa is about 600 to 800 meters, 45 degrees, maybe a bit steeper in some places. That sounds like no fun. So if that's with, ice... With that ice. And you fall... Yeah, you ain't you're stopping. Slide, you're not stopping. You're sliding all the way. And 600 to 800 meters, that is that's six football pitches. You know, so that's... That's a long way you're sliding. So that's a lot of momentum you're picking up. Yeah. So I was riding down. Um, I didn't at that stage. I wasn't riding with ice axes yet. I've learnt my lesson. I've definitely. Had, I've got one now. Um, uh, that's uh, another story later. But um, yeah. So I was. Um, I was just shouting up to him. Says, "Look, you know, just watch out." He had an ice axe, but he didn't take it out, and he was literally, you know, sliding you know bit by bit it was literally millimeter by millimeter to try and get down this cool and yeah all of a sudden he slipped and um his one of his skis came off straight away the other one he tried to punch it into the snow to stop himself that just exploded off and that was him just accelerating <laughs> down he went and to me i thought yeah that's it over but that's not a good situation so I ended up getting down there, like, slowly, slowly, slowly. It took me about 10 minutes to get down to the bottom. Um, and there he was, shaking. Um, all his skin ripped off his face. Um, helmet ripped off. Um, backpack ripped. Clothes, everything ripped. But alive, no broken bones. Uh, so lucky, so lucky that he's, uh, he managed to keep it together. So... And then, um, yeah, he, he was like, we've got to call the helicopter. Uh, and he asked me, Sasha, can you call the helicopter? I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake, I called him the day before. I can't call him again. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, no, no, come on, you, you call him. I said, he's like, okay, I'll call him. So he called him, same thing. Where are you? Exocore of the Ronde, yeah, what's happened? Uh, slid down. Um, so, okay, what are you wearing? Um, I'm all in black, but I'm with my friend. He's a snowboarder. He's got a red snowboard, a blue, uh, blue jacket, and a red backpack. And I'm just thinking, no. Don't no, tell me it's the no. same pilot. 
So then we're waiting and the helicopter comes around the corner and there's two helicopters. There's a blue one, a blue greyish one and a yellow one. And the, the one which picked me up the day before was the yellow one. So what comes around the corner? The yellow one. And I'm just thinking, oh no. And then the winch comes down with the with the um, with the uh, uh, with the security guy and it's not the same guy thankfully but i knew because there's been talk about this in chamonix so the pilot uh he did see me so he saw you know he was the same guy so so they took him up and they asked me do you want to go up again as well and i'm like no, no no i'll be fine i'll i'll ride this this last bit i'll do it on my own it's like really do you not want to go no 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 i'll, I'll go so and then i went to visit paul in the hospital really lucky so um yeah. how was the run huh how was the run at the end the, amazing no no it was literally just getting back so again it was on my own so it's just staying safe so so um a couple of years riding in sham with james um yes yeah, so it was riding in chamonix um one year one and then, year and then the next year um james got a wild card into the world tour so he was in the world tour and I was watching him on uh, on YouTube and uh, and I was seeing him ride and thinking, come on, James, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, when you ride with me, when you ride with me, you're way better than this. What are you doing? You know, stopping in places and stuff. Come on. So I was like, right, oh, this is just right. I'm, I'm going to. And that kind of spurred me on to go and join him in the tour. James got a wild card. So, um, you know, I was like, oh, wild card. Um, no chance so i had to do it the hard way which is kind of like uh, how does a, so the qualifier series works like the um the premiership so you basically you have to work up each league um so you've got the qualifier series you've got one star two star three star four hour star events i tried to join a three star and four star event straight away they said no chance you need enough points to get into it so uh, then i tried to join a two star event he also said nope can't do it so i was like oh come on please you know it's yes i know i've never done a competition before but you know i was riding 10 years ago i know how this works and then he's like oh, okay we'll let you in so two star came second then had some points uh, but still not enough and then four star came along and again uh spoke to him and managed to sneak my way in but only into the qualifier to the four stars so only five qualified from from 40 i came in in fifth so just made it in and then the five joined the other seven uh, so that there was um, 12 guys who were in the final in the four star event and there i came second and then i had enough points so from then on um it took uh, two years to get through the qualifiers uh, back then, only the top three of the whole qualifier series, and there's like 250 guys or something, that's even more now, doing it. And three of those end up going into the World Tour. Now it's even worse. Now only one of the whole qualifier series qualifies for the Tour. Um, yeah, and then um, 2014, I was in the Tour, ready to give James a bit of uh, some competition. And what does James do? He retires. You know, he just goes and does his. Uh, so you come in. Does his trips. Checked you know? out at the top. So it checked out. I'm like, ah, oh, James, really? Um, yeah. So do you, do you have to get sponsorship to compete in that? Does it cost money? Um, so uh, with the World Tour, they pay for everything uh, when you get there. Right, but which is why they're so protective about who they let ride it, presumably. 
yeah maybe i don't know yeah i mean they want it's a show you know it's a business as well so um and they um but you have to pay your own travel um they give you it's changed over the years so it used to be five hundred dollars now it's a bit more um per event and then but the winnings they're quite good so if you come first second even third you get quite a bit of money on top so but it's not or for me it's not, not about that for me it's not the money for me it's uh, being in a community again being in a in a family very similar to the to the snowboard scene we we used to have back in the day um everyone loves what they're doing there's it's basically a <coughs> it's basically a group of 90 people who turn up in a ski resort um and then yeah and then have fun for a couple of days and then go out and go to another ski resort and so on so how do those events work you get two days riding well it de- it depends so yeah so after if we go back so after two years doing a season julian and myself were skinned we had no more money left so then we had to get back to work so we built up this company again uh, so at that stage it was just us two and we had to kind of like start recruiting again getting people training people um yeah and that's that's what we've been doing but what i managed to agree with julian because i loved snowboarding is that i would get every friday off so every thursday night i would fly to geneva go riding friday saturday sunday and monday morning fly back to london to work four days a week and i've been doing that for the last four years not this year this year's physio physio yeah um and because of that i could also do the tour because that's usually so you turn up um you've got in the in their ideal scenario you turn up uh, you've got one ray of uh, one day of riding and then you've got one day of inspection when you basically look at the look at the mountain and then you've got the next day where the competition is and then you've got the night where the party is and then the next day you usually ride again together if you're not too hung over and then it's it's home time but the world tour or free riding is very dependent on weather and snow so if the snow's not right if it's too dangerous or if there's not enough snow then we wait and that's why it's such a community because you're in you're in a resort for a week sometimes two weeks alaska we were there for 14 days um couldn't ride because it was terrible weather there's no um there's no lifts you literally uh, you could only go heli skiing but if the weather's bad you can't go so you're literally stuck in the resort together doing different things and so you made some good friends in that community yeah yeah definitely definitely and you did you did well right you know you were starting to kind of win events and podium yeah i mean from the start so the first event i came second so i've always been able to get on the podium um but then i do also have some events where i crash so it's it's you know win or spin no what's it called spin or win no it's not spinning so it's like crash or, or or go for it so this year started really well i won the first one uh not this year last year and then um yeah it's gone downhill from there on so so do you think you'll be able to ride again i mean earlier you said you thought you would like no you, i'll be able to snowboard again yeah but the question is at what level um what do you think will i be able to do the world tour events again i'd like to to be honest definitely i don't want i don't want someone else to which is 
uh, like I don't want fate to be able to stop me doing something so I'd rather be able to decide myself when when I stop or not um, but let's see let's see how this goes I mean, have I you given to... yourself a time frame when you think it might well it all depends on so I used to weigh around 72 73 kilos um, after the accident literally down to 63 uh, and now I'm back up to 66 67 but you know there's barely any muscle on me anymore um, I'm trying but it's very it's very hard uh, when you can't use your your left side properly so the arm will take time the leg let's see let's see I mean um, I'm hoping that I can start going snowboarding again the next year um, yeah I mean, with the tour, because I had enough points already in the first three events, I even got my invitation email for this year. Really? Say, saying, you know, uh, looking forward to seeing, and I just emailed back saying, eh, I think rehab and physio is going to take a bit longer than a year. But in future, and the thing is, if you don't make it for the next year, your spot's gone. But I emailed them saying, look, in future, if, you know, if, if I get better, I'd love to be able to join again. And they said, um, yeah, for you, there's a space. So let's, this is, you know, this is looking at, at least it gives me something to work towards. But the main thing is trying to get back to being a left-hander, if I could start using my left hand again. How difficult has that been? I mean, that's something you take completely for granted, right? I mean, are you, you right-handed now? Or well, I, I can write a bit with the right, um, on the computer's hard work, cooking's really hard. Um, you just live with it, don't you? Mm. Yeah. I've been thinking, there's a couple of things I could do. So, I mean, at the moment, for these two years, you know, I've had this operation where they've opened the spine, put the nerves back in. So these two years, I'm doing this. So where I'm electrocuting myself and doing the hand therapy. But if it doesn't work, I've had a look. The Luke Skywalker hand, they're not good enough yet. So uh, they're too slow, you know, they're not, they're not that cool yet. Um, but otherwise, just Captain Hook, you know. Get a hook, exactly. strong look. Get, get a hook. Then my eye, if you can see, my left eye is a bit droopy. And that's because... Um, is that nerve damage as well? So when you rip out the lower two nerves of your uh, uh, plexus brachialis, you... Um, um, you get the Horner syndrome, which means that your eyelid goes down a little bit. Okay. So I could even get an eye patch for that, you know. You could go Proper. full pirate. Full pirate. Yeah. Har, har, har. The first snowboarding <laughs> pirate. Given everything that's happened, um, has your outlook on snowboarding changed in any way, do you think? No. No. I mean, snowboarding for me was always about enjoying the time in the mountains. It's even more so... Um, the last couple of years maybe even having the 10 year break even more so because you can really see it when when you're riding when you're in the mountains for three days you know you're in nature um, you're with friends you know uh, you're enjoying the time and then you come back to London and you get to work at 9 o'clock and literally for example walking over London Bridge you know it's rat it's a proper rat race it's a proper hamster wheel so it's just getting out of that and actually enjoying life a bit as well yeah and I, that's not going to change 
yeah if you can still like you say go snowboarding to a level you can still get that enjoyment out of it can't you i don't i mean other people are saying look you know you're you're old now i should start you know getting a family and having kids and stuff but that's a lot of commitment as well so if you could have another day snowboarding at full power any day where would you go you could choose any anywhere well one of the best days i've had um was um on the 2nd of june uh, in chamonix and um there's so we there's a friend of mine uh, flo uh, we were going to do a run right below the uh, aguila midi really dangerous no fall zone and that was that's what we wanted to do and we went up the north face yes exactly yeah so it's the the mallory the mallory and then there's one next to called the yuxta kuwa um and and we went up but we saw some people ride down it, and the conditions you know it was hard pack so it wasn't that nice and we ended up going and doing a rond the one where we got i got picked up uh with, um we did the one next to it called the Kuzmik, and then we did uh, just a really easy um, uh, Valley Blanche. So we did three runs in that day on the 2nd of June, and it was literally powder from top to bottom. And mate, barely any tracks. It was one of the best days. Um, but I mean, thinking back, there's, there's so many, there's so many different events, but it's just being up there with friends who, who want to who wanna do the same thing you want to do, where it's, camaraderie where you're enjoying the time together so well I've no doubt that those days will come again Sash uh, you just need to keep on with this don't you really we'll see yeah well thanks very much appreciate it it's been really good to catch up yes thank you blimey what a story eh and I didn't even ask him about the ice axe incident he alluded to halfway through so I'll have to bank that for when he comes on again for me, though, the thing that came across most during the entire chat in both parts of my interview with Sasha Ham was his single-mindedness and sheer mental strength, really. Faced with life-changing injuries, I'll work as hard as I can to give myself the best chance of recovery with pitiless honesty and realism. And I'll Google the shit out of it and prove the doctor's wrong. Want to become a racing car driver? Well, I'll take this 10k I've earned from snowboarding, roll the dice for three years and see if I can make it. Yes, yeah, some of Sasha's big dreams have led to failures, some of which, as we've seen, have been pretty catastrophic. But through it all, his determination and attitude has remained gloriously the same, and long may that continue. Now, his latest dream, as he explained in part one, is to recover as much as he can and one day end up riding the Freeride World Tour again. Given how focused he is, I really wouldn't put it past him. The other theme that I thought came across is how much Sasha takes from his communion with the outside world and the wider snowboarding community, which... For somebody who's known him for as long as I, I was, I must say, a little bit of a surprise, really. I've, I've not really heard him talk about that before. Yeah, he charges in ways many of us can't comprehend, but it transpires that what Sasha was looking for, what he craved and continues to look for from snowboarding is a sense of community and a sense of communion with nature. And who among us who spent any time in the mountains on any level can't empathise with that? So thanks, Sash. Appreciate it. Appreciate the honesty. It was great to talk to you. So thanks for coming on. In episode five, which is the next episode, I was lucky enough to speak to snowboarder, documentary maker, and yes, Oscar winner, Orlando von Eisendell. This chat took place a week after he's back from LA, and it's a really revealing insight into what went down at the Oscars. 
and the wider story of Orlando's journey from snowboarding filmmaker to cream of the global documentary scene, which is uh, quite a an evolution, you might say. So well done, Orlando, and thanks for coming on the show. He offered some peerless insights into his process, and he was really good on the dogged determination needed to succeed in any creative endeavour. So have a listen to that one when you get the chance. As ever, thanks very much for listening to and or downloading the podcast. If you could leave me a positive review on iTunes, that'd be much appreciated because it all really helps. You can also find me on wearelookingsideways.com and on there you'll find all the social links and the SoundCloud links if you'd rather share on there. And you can also subscribe on there. I've got a nice big subscribe button. So yeah, check it out, have a look. Thanks very much for listening. Until the next time, goodbye.